0: This sermon was originally preached on Sunday, August 29th, 2021. It was re-recorded on Wednesday, September 1st, 2021. Good morning, Stafford Baptist Church. It is good to gather with you as one body to praise the name of Jesus. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Kelton. I serve as one of the pastors of Stafford Baptist. This morning, we conclude our August sermon series, Restoring Repentance. Our goal has been to build a biblical framework for why and how the church is to deal with sin in the body, the church. And I want to give a short disclaimer here at the start. If you're not a member of this church, thank you for visiting with us. This morning's sermon is quite unique. Not only is it topical, which is out of the ordinary for us, but it is particularly relevant to matters our body is dealing with. But I will do my best to make this sermon for everyone, member and visitor. So, hear this sermon on the importance of you joining and investing your life in the local church, either this one or another. The local church is integral to God's design for your Christian life. Our text this morning comes from the book of Hebrews in chapter 10. We'll be in verses 24 through 27. So, please open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 27. Hebrews is nearer the end of your New Testament, right before James. Hebrews ten twenty four through 27 The Sin of Not Assembling. In our four past sermons in this series, we've seen that God is absolutely holy. As holy, he demands his people to be holy like he is, and his commands are not arbitrary. We've seen that God in love disciplines all who are his children, both with training and correction, We studied Jesus' instructions in Matthew 18 in, in how to pursue the repentance and restoration of an unrepentant sinner in private, with partners, and in public, and that the goal is to win our brother back. And last week, we saw the danger of tolerated sin, that God says it will spread and damage the entire church. We must act for the good of the whole body. If you've missed any of these sermons, I'd encourage you to listen to the recording on our website, or we can make you a CD. Just let us know. Everything we've considered has daily relevance to our life together as a church, but today we aim to stitch it all together and apply it to one matter in particular, the necessity of Christians to regularly assemble as the church. Before we read our text this morning, let's pray once more for God's help in the hearing and proclaiming of his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you as the inspirer of your holy word. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, and not only have you revealed yourself, but you have called us to yourself, and that you gather a people to praise your name. Father, I pray this morning as we consider the importance, the necessity of the gathering of your people, Lord, that you would give us grace, grace to see the beauty of the gathering for what it is, and grace to call others to the same vision of your gathering. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. I want you to imagine something with me. A misplaced hand. Not joined to its arm or body, just laying in the street somewhere. Something like thing from Adam's family. Or imagine a young woman who hasn't talked to her family in years, estranged from those who ought to be closest to her in the world. Or if that's too close to home for you, envision something less personal. A brick sitting in a field all by itself, with no walls or buildings in sight. A hand without a body, a daughter without a family, a brick without a building. They are sad images, some useless, and not at all how things should be. Hands belong on bodies, people in families, bricks in buildings. In all these, the body, the family, a building... They're all used by God to describe the church and the Christian's part in it. Christians are the hand to the body, the daughter to the family, the brick to the building of the church. A Christian who lives apart from the regular fellowship of the local church may be a possibility, like a brick in a field, but it's not what God has ordered. Our sermon text this morning in Hebrews 10 shows us that God has commanded that Christians regularly gather with the local church to encourage one another. And it warns us with sober language that to disregard God's command is no light matter. Read with me God's word, Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. The word of the Lord. Well, Our main idea this morning is is this. Pursue the repentance of those who persistently and purposefully neglect the church assembly. Pursue the repentance of those who persistently and purposefully neglect the church assembly. Our goal this morning is to show from Hebrews and from the rest of the New Testament that the continued and intentional neglect of the church assembly is contrary to God's word and therefore must be addressed as sin. Pursue the repentance of those who persistently and purposely neglect the church assembly. We're going to argue this in three points this morning. We'll work from the details here in Hebrews to the big picture in the whole Testament. First, neglect of our assembly Second, neglect of our commitments. And third, neglect of our identity. Neglect of our assembly, neglect of our commitments, and neglect of our identity. Let's think more about Hebrews 10 in our first point, neglect of our assembly. Since we're dropping into the middle of the book of Hebrews, it's helpful to have some context. Hebrews is a book written to struggling Christians. Christians tempted to abandon their faith due to suffering and persecution So the whole book is an argument why we should hold fast to Christ in faith. That argument looks like explaining that Jesus is better than all the Old Testament and is the Old Testament's appointed fulfillment. Jesus is our high priest and sacrifice. In in chapter 10, our chapter is a major turn in the book. Here, our author is applying everything he said about Christ's priesthood and sacrifice and the main exhortation is in verse 23. Since all that he's said is true of Jesus, in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. It's the whole point of the whole book, really. So our passage picks up that thought, how do we hold fast to Jesus? Look again with me at verse 24. He starts and let us consider to consider, to think, it's an exhortation for us to focus our attention carefully on others. And and to what? He says, how to stir up one another to love and good works. To provoke one another. Love in their fellowship is to be expressed by intentional consideration about how each one can help the other persevere. We stir up one another In verse 24, to love and good works. Love is obviously the summary of the law, the greatest commandment love for God and love for neighbor. Good works are what God has created us for in Christ Jesus a life of obedience to God for the good of others. But this kind of mutual care will not be sustained unless the members meet together regularly. That's what he says in verse 25 as he continues his exhortation. Look down at the verse with me. Do not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some. Some, it seems, were giving up meeting together. We don't know why, particularly. It could have been the persecution or simply indifference. So our author charges them to continue gathering. And there it is, in no uncertain terms. The Apostle's teaching commands Christians not to neglect to meet together. The call for us is to devote ourselves to the Apostles' teaching. We could stop there this morning and, and have enough. This is the inspired Word of God, what we confess together in our confession of faith as authoritative, the sufficient rule for faith and practice, life and godliness. Some of the commands in the Bible are what I would call occasional, not universal. You know, like Paul telling Timothy to take a little wine with his water for his frequent ailments. But we know that that doesn't mean Christians must always mix their water with wine. But that's not what we have here. An occasional prescription for the situation those believers were in. No, this is a command for all Christians, everywhere, for all time. But I want us to notice something in particular you might expect him to continue in verse 25 after the the but with the opposite of skipping. Something like this, not neglecting to meet together, but rather attend, gather. But that's not what he does. The opposite of skipping isn't simply attending, it is encouraging. Read with me verse 25 again. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The purpose of our gathering is to hold fast to Christ and to encourage one another to do the same. It is to be refreshed in truths about Christ together. The command to gather is rooted in the gospel, the good news of Christ's priesthood and sacrifice. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, each to his own way. Every person, you and I alike, are sinners, guilty in God's sight. Though He created us good, holy, we are all now born with a nature in rebellion from God and what He commands. God in His justice is opposed to our evil. But God in mercy has made a way for our evil to be forgiven. God gave His own Son, Jesus Christ, to live the life we should have lived, and die in our place as our substitute, who then rose and ascended in defeat of death. So in Christ, we can be forgiven of our sins and restored to fellowship with God and one another. We receive this gift by repentance and faith, by acknowledging and turning away from our rebellion and trusting in Christ, our high priest and sacrifice. Friends, the purpose of our gathering isn't simply to be warm bodies in the room. Your presence with other Christians doesn't save you. You can be in church, but not in Christ. You can know the pastor, but not know Christ. You can have your name on the church roll, but not have your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. You can profess Christ, but not possess Christ. Are you here this morning, but without lively, joyful faith in Christ? Come he says, and receive eternal life. Christ by the gospel saves, and those he saves he gathers to encourage one another until the day he comes again. So Stafford Baptist, did you know our responsibility when we gather is to encourage one another? So let me encourage you to focus your attention carefully on others, how to provoke them to love and good works to think and pray before you enter the gathering each week about who you can encourage this week. Consider your role here as encourager. This whole section is filled with the plural us and are and we. This is a community project, each of us with a part to play. But we have two more verses to consider. The exhortations and commands of verses 15 through 25 are followed by the strongest warnings of the letter. At the end of verse 25, we are reminded that a a capital D day is coming. The day. A day of salvation and judgment. In verses 26 and 27, he describes what awaits those who continue in deliberate sin. He calls it a fearful expectation of judgment which will be a fury of fire that will consume God's adversaries, his, his enemies. To continue in sin is to be God's enemy. It is to remain opposed to God and warrants judgment. The rest of the paragraph describes it as without mercy, as punishment, as vengeance. He concludes in verse 31 that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This warning is particularly for those who abandon Christ. Without Christ, there is no rescue from certain coming judgment. The deliberate sin of verse 26, though, can be any disobedience of what God commands. As we considered last week, sin is not a personality flaw, a mistake. It's not a poor preference. It is a personal offense against our holy God. It is evil in His sight and makes us guilty before Him. Yes, all Christians sin. We are not yet perfect. But Christians don't, in the words of verse 26, go on sinning deliberately. Or 1 John 5.18, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Christians repent of sin when it is known. It might take a friend, or two or three, or the whole church, or even our removal from that church for a Christian to see his sin. But true Christians in time repent. And I want to be clear here. There are good reasons for Christians to miss church that that aren't a neglect of the assembly, that aren't sin. Neglect is a posture of the heart. Paul was in prison for years, but that doesn't mean he was guilty before God of neglecting to meet together. When, by providence, we are prevented from gathering, we are not in sin. I think our recent pandemic is a prime example of this principle. But, as in all that God commands, if you are able, you are responsible. To go on sinning deliberately when able is to incur God's judgment. The continued and intentional neglect of the church assembly is contrary to God's command and is sin. This neglect is particularly conspicuous, verifiable, it's clear to all, and it must be repented of. It requires a change of heart and action from sin toward obedience. For those that persistently and purposely neglect the church assembly without repentance, our duty as the church is to pursue their restoration and protect the body. That means If you notice someone hasn't been here for a few weeks, reach out to them. Check in on them. Maybe they're sick or on vacation or had to work, or maybe they've begun to lose sight of the importance of the assembly. Like with all correction, we're to be patient and prayerful. Or if this neglect describes you, please hear me. Church attendance is not a checklist. It is God's gracious calling and gift for our good, yours and mine. There is grace for this sin in Jesus Christ, a grace that, that leads to repentance and faith, the obedience of faith, to follow Jesus as he commands. This neglect is serious. It is a violation of the clear command of God, but it, It is also contrary to so much else of what God expects of his people. I want to leave Hebrews 10 and take you on a a quick tour of nine other commitments the New Testament expects of Christians that show how important it is to prioritize the regular assembly. Our second point, brothers and sisters, neglect of our commitments. It is enough to simply point out the command of Hebrews 10.25, but there's more. Beyond one verse, the entire New Testament assumes that Christians will live out their walk in committed relationships formalized in a gathering. We're going to do a quick sampling of nine different commitments the New Testament places on Christians, all that assume a regular gathering. First and foremost, love. The command to love one another is repeated 13 times in the New Testament. Jesus taught in John 13, 35, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. How is the world to know that we are Jesus' disciples? It's by our love for one another. Certainly, our love isn't exclusive to other Christians. Jesus taught us to love our enemies. But the distinguishing mark of Christian love is for one another. It's for other disciples. But here's the problem. Jesus said other people will know of our love. If the world is going to see our love, it will need to be visible love. It can't stay hidden in your heart, a a pious feeling. Our love is a love like Jesus' love, as he has loved. In fact, we love because he first loved us. We cannot love one another without his love first for us. We are born again to live a life of love because he has loved us, because he is our high priest and sacrifice. But then, having been born again from above, Christian love for one another is action. It is deeds. It is seen in our consideration of how to stir up one another to likewise love. It is encouraging others. Visible Christian love, like Jesus's, assumes physical presence. It assumes being together so we can be seen. But that's just a start. If we spin the New Testament like a globe, wherever our finger lands assumes our gathering. So, second, welcome one another. Welcome one another. Romans 15:7 commands us, Therefore, welcome one another, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The apostle Paul is writing to the Roman church and tells them to welcome one another in the same way that Christ welcomes them. Christians who do not attend the gathering simply can never obey this command. They're not here to welcome anyone. Church, let me encourage you to continue to welcome one another, particularly people you don't know. I've heard recently from visitors that the reason they've stuck around is because we've welcomed them well, like Christ welcomes. So, welcome one another. Third, the Bible commands us to sing to one another. Ephesians 5.19 says, Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Yes, we make melody to the Lord, but we also address one another in our hymns. Christians can sing as loud as they can, but if they're not assembled, we will never be addressed by them. Again, they simply cannot obey this command without assembling. Having been your pastor for a year and a half, let me exhort you, sing loudly to one another. The church has a choir. You're in it. So third, sing to one another. Fourth, the public reading of Scripture. 1 Timothy 4.13, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Paul here is giving Timothy, his co-worker, instruction for corporate worship. We can be devoted to the public reading of Scripture, both as a reader or as a listener. But public reading requires the public, a community. You can't do this without others. Our tally grows. Another commitment that requires an assembly, the public reading of Scripture. Fifth, to confess sin and pray for one another. James 5.16 commands Christians... Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Now, James is not imagining that you notice someone with a a WWJD bracelet at the Spotsy Mall, take them aside and and start confessing your sins to them. I'm happy to grant you can do this outside the context of the local church. You can pray general platitudes for other Christians, but the pairing in James 5.16 assumes our prayer is for particular sins, for particular brothers. Consider it more evidence that the Bible assumes your life is lived out in the kind of regular relationship marked by things you don't do with strangers. Confess sin and pray. It assumes we are consistently involved in one another's lives. So confess your sins and pray with one another. Sixth, imitate and obey leaders. Later in the letter we've been reading this morning in Hebrews, The author wrote, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Well, let's state the obvious. To imitate a way of life, a faith, you need to observe a way of life. You can't observe an author through a book or a teacher through recording. Imitation requires consistent physical proximity. A few verses later, he writes, in Hebrews 13:17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Leaders, that is pastors, have to give an account of those they lead, as in explain how they've led and and why. Speaking for your for pastors church, we will give an account of our watch. And Hebrews is not talking about watching a Facebook feed. He says we are watching souls, your innermost person that will live forever. The Bible assumes that all Christians have accountable relationships with a specific set of nameable leaders. Leaders who know them so well, they know their very souls. So sixth, imitate and obey leaders. Seventh, another brick in our wall, rejoice and weep. Romans 12, 15 and 16. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Paul here means for Christians to empathize with those both in joy and in sorrow. To put our own feelings aside and join with others in theirs. Obviously that means knowing how others feel and why. Again, it is clear that we're involved in deeply committed relationships. But don't skip over the preposition with might he mean literally with weep with sitting next to in the pew a physical presence rejoice and weep with one another eighth build up others with your gifts in first corinthians twelve seven, paul tells the church that they all have gifts to each he writes is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good The whole chapter and the two that follow are a wonderful place to meditate on the importance of the church and each part of it. But what you discover is that these gifts are exercised in the gathering, in the church. The climax in 1 Corinthians 14, 12 is this command. Paul writes, so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. The reason God gives gifts is to build up his church, his body. Christians who neglect the assembly give no opportunity for the rest of the body to be built up by their gifts. We are lacking a body part necessary for us to grow. We need eyes and hands, ears and feet. Stafford Baptist, each of you has been given gifts by the Spirit to build up this body. We are enriched by your service. So if you see a need, meet the need in whatever way you are gifted and build up the body. Finally, ninth be distinct. Be distinct. In Matthew five thirteen, Jesus taught his disciples that they are to be different from the world, as salt. He says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. The point of Jesus' metaphor is that his disciples are to be distinct. Undistinct disciples are as useless as salt that has lost its taste. Christians who neglect a gathering are, in one important way, living just like the world. They're salt that's lost its taste. Well, that's just nine examples, church, of how the entire New Testament assumes that Christians will live out their walk in committed relationships, formalized in a regular gathering. Time would fail to say that Those who do not gather fail to obey the command to observe the Lord's Supper. They're likely not showing us hospitality. They're not submitting to one another, nor giving to the church, and more and more. Friends, all of these commitments are motivated, not out of a desire to earn God's love, to earn our righteousness and favor before Him, but are motivated by grace. Because we have God's love, because we have His grace, therefore... We will live as new creatures. We will walk in the newness of life, in the fellowship of the church. Well, as complete as this list might be, there is another point we need to consider. To neglect the gathering is not only disobedience to Hebrews 10.25, not only is it contrary to the commitments the New Testament places on Christians, but it is further a neglect of our very identity. So our third point this morning, neglect of our identity. Neglect of our identity. To neglect the gathering is to neglect who we are most fundamentally. Our identity as the church is given to us by Jesus. We don't get to choose our own identity. And identities are incredibly important. So much of what we do, how we live, is rooted in who we know we are. Have you ever considered why Jesus decided to identify us, this group, as a church? Why didn't he just use the Jewish term, synagogue? When he was restoring humanity, bringing in the kingdom of God, why didn't he call us something striking, like the Illuminati? Do you know what the word church means? It's not a name for a building, though we use it that way often. The word Jesus chose to describe his followers, the church, literally means called out ones. It means assembly. In Acts 19, the Greek word we translate as church is used to describe a, a convening of citizens to discuss a legal matter. Jesus decided to call us an assembly, a congregation. It's in our very name. Yes, we understand there is a universal assembly, But that universal church has to get together sometime. You can't be part of an assembly and never assemble. But he doesn't just call us a church. He has given us other names as well. The New Testament calls us body, family, and temple, the illustrations we started our sermon with. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says that now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Or Romans 12, 4 and 5, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Our identity is that of a body. And it makes no sense to use that metaphor of a body and expect limbs to be scattered everywhere. No, they're together. They assemble this is why when we as a church take the Lord's Supper, we wait to eat at the same time to show that we are one body. Listen to Paul again in 1 Corinthians ten seventeen. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Our eating together is a display of the fact that we are one body, partaking all of the same bread literally and spiritually the bread of christ or even further the bible gives us the identity of family first john 3 1 see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of god and so we are jesus himself told us who is my mother and who are my brothers and stretching out his hand toward his disciples he said here are my mother and my brothers For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Yes, in this world, families are broken and estranged. But Jesus is building a new family, a family he is perfecting by his grace. The church is family. And families are meant to live together, to gather around the dinner table together. Well, maybe mostly odd of all, our identity is that of a temple, or a spiritual house. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter here is calling Christians living stones that are being built into a spiritual house. Peter is using the imagery of the temple, the dwelling place of God. And if the house is going to stand, bricks need to be firmly planted on top of and next to each other. Body parts work together. Families live together. Stones fit together. To add more metaphors, the Christian life is not a solo hike. It is a holy caravan together until we reach the celestial city. Author Paul Tripp summarizes the importance of our identity as church, body, family, and temple. He writes, An isolated, independent, separated, and self-hiding Christian life is alien to the Christianity of the New Testament. Biblical Christianity is thoroughly and foundationally relational. No one can live outside the essential ministries of the body of Christ and remain spiritually healthy. Christian, God has designed that all of our lives be lived in the context of the body, the family, and the house of the local church. It is His design in His perfect wisdom for our good and His glory. Through it, the church, Ephesians 3.10 says, He is making His manifold wisdom known to all heavenly powers. Yes, no church is perfect, certainly including this assembly. That's no surprise because every church is made up of imperfect people. Redeemed, yes, repenting, yes, debtors to grace, yes, but still works in progress. But the people, with its regular gathering, with all of its commitments, is His chosen instrument, by grace, for our growth, our joy, and our keeping. If you're visiting with us today as a Christian and you're not a member of a church, this is your identity too. What we've seen in God's word this morning is what He is calling you to too. Not only does the work of Christ mean the forgiveness of your sins, but He has made you a part of this new community. He has given you a new body, a family, a house. Let me encourage you to find a body, a family, a temple, where you can live out God's vision for our life together, here or wherever this gospel is preached. I'd like to conclude this morning in atypical fashion with The true story of a man I once knew. It's a sobering testimony to the power of the responsibility the church has. This man was saved by God's grace through the witness of his Christian co-worker, a member of the church I was a part of. This man was baptized and joined the local church. But through many difficult sin struggles, despite the love and pursuit of the body, this brother eventually stopped attending the church gathering. The church pursued his repentance and restoration, but he refused. So, after more than a year of attempts in obedience to Jesus' teaching in in Matthew 18, the church removed him as an act of church discipline for neglect of the gathering. That man died earlier this month, only in his late 30s. He had been diagnosed with stage 4 cancer a year ago. And do you know what happened in the last year? He went back to church. His conscience could not be quiet. Even though he refused to listen to the church's warnings, their loving act of discipline ate away at him. By God's grace, God used the discipline in in time to bring this brother back to the church, to repentance. Of course, not every story ends like this brother's. Dealing with sin in the church is messy and sad. But the point, brothers and sisters, is is that tomorrow is not guaranteed for any of us. Life is short. The urgency of repentance is real. The effects of our love, even when hard, can be eternal. As your pastor who loves you, this is my plea. Let us be a church that loves one another so well that we would pursue each other's repentance and restoration however it is required. Let's pray. Our Father, it is our joy that we get to call you, Father, as your family, as your children, that you have called us out of darkness into the kingdom of your beloved Son, that we together are one body, one family, one temple. Lord, we thank you that you have accomplished this in us, not by our good works, not by our righteousness, but but in fact, despite of it. Lord, that you have graciously made us new and made us one through your work in Christ on our behalf. Lord, I do pray that as your body that we would see the importance of our gathering, of our assembly to encourage one another. Lord, I pray that you would make us a body that encourages one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. Father, I pray that we would hold our brothers and sisters accountable. Lord, that we would encourage them. We would pursue them in repentance. That they would not neglect the gathering. It's for the glory of Jesus Christ that we pray this. Amen.